Welcome to the PIP Podcast. Today we're speaking with Morag Gamble, founder of the Permaculture Education Institute, permaculture YouTuber at Our Permaculture Life. She runs a small permaculture education charity called Ethos Foundation, and she's a global permaculture ambassador. So thanks for having a chat with me today, Morag. Hi, Robin. Nice to speak with you. That's quite a long, lengthy introduction, isn't it? <laughs> You're doing a lot in permaculture and you've been doing it since your you've been involved with permaculture since your teens, is that right? Yeah, yeah. It's kind of pretty much been my entire life. The only thing I really have ever done in terms of work has been permaculture and all the projects I've been involved with have been permaculture related and I live in a permaculture eco village and <laughs> Set up a permaculture city farm. <laughs> Met my husband doing a permaculture course. So you truly are a permaculture. Uh, that's why I kind of called, you know, the the video, uh, the YouTube, and the blog our permaculture life because you know pretty much it has been this underpinning thing in the really broadest sense possible. Mm. Um, you know, it is about you know the way we you know designed our house and it underpins it. It's from that ethical perspective. I think it's kind of that the 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 mindset or the way of approaching decision making, the the way of, you know, valuing things comes from that perspective of earth care, people care and fair share. And it just makes really great sense to me. It's really a common sense way of living that helps you to to connect with place and community and to live a, a simple, beautiful, abundant, thriving life. I think it's mm. just it's you know, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. Well and I was gonna say it too and it connects people around the world and I and I just love that about it mm. well I was going to say um often people have heard of the word permaculture and they kind of have a bit of an idea they think maybe it's something to do with gardening and so I thought maybe rather than try I mean often we try and explain it in a couple of sentences and it's, it can be a bit abstract could you explain sort of describe your life and explain how it what makes it a permaculture life as opposed to just someone who's living sustainably hmm. yeah that's a that's a really big question and I'm glad <laughs> describe you your whole life <laughs> <laughs> yeah well I mean I think at the outset it's that intent of actually trying to, it, it is an intentional thing mm. um, and I think that's a, a key part of it that in, in an intent to to live um, uh, less in a way that has less impact. So I'm, what I'm trying to say is like a, it's a one planet life. I, mm. As a young mm. as a young teenager, I remember feeling really activated, really really angry, and, and many times about the things that I was seeing in the world. Kind of like I kind of relate to what young people are feeling now. And there was a, I just turned fifty, so it was back in you know the eighties. There was a lot of things going on in the world that were really. Um, activating a lot of people and there was protests on the street and I was part of that and I remember coming coming out the end of that and actually feeling like being spat out of it in a way because I felt really angry all the time I felt I was losing friends because they were kind of seeing me coming and knew I was going to you know go rah-rah about forests or dams or nuclear or this or that and people wanted mm. didn't want to keep mm. having that conversation and I got to this point where I think I actually didn't speak to anyone really for about eight or nine months. I just went and went into hermit mode. Mm. And I mm. and during that time, I you know just went for walks in nature, rode my bike all the time, just read 
copious amounts of things around ecological philosophy and transpersonal ecology and and I and I kind of got to the end of that. I was sitting I used to go down to a place called Raymond Island in the Gippsland Lakes and I would sit there, you know, I I'd just walk along and I'd sit along the beach and I'd think about things and then one night I was sitting there and it sounds really woo but there were sparks. There was this kind of moment when everything just started to make sense and it was from that point onwards I went okay you know there's no point just sitting and hiding away or feeling sad and angry and depressed about this it's like if not that life then what life mm-hmm. how are we to live what what does that look like what does that world that is not full of you know hate and violence and degradation and all those things what does that life look like and in my searching, you know, I went as I went up over the other side of the Himalayas to Ladakh, and I lived um, with the Ladakhis for quite some time, which is a traditional, sustainable culture. Um, and I went to a place called Schumacher College in England, which was gathering together some of the leading ecological thinkers. And there was a guy there um, who came and talked about permaculture, and reminded me of my childhood being raised. You know, with permaculture being talked all the time, but it just was always in the background. And um, finally, it just kind of hit me. That was it. So I came back to Australia and I went straight and did a permaculture course up here at Crystal Waters. And that's all I've ever been doing ever since, Mm. trying Mm. to find a way to understand what a one-planet life looks like, how to create regenerative communities and cultures, how to... Um, and how to share that and demonstrate it, not to tell people or try and hit people over the head with it saying, you've got to do this mm. too, but how can you live, a, live it, demonstrate it in a way that can attract other people into it, that it's such an, an interesting and vibrant and abundant and happy, beautiful way to live. Mm. Why wouldn't you want to choose that? You know, yeah. that's kind of... And also to show that uh, if you can also continue to to live, you know, live well, but live with 80% less consumption of resources and energy. And so, you know, simply we we built our house here using as much local materials and and, um, materials from that were um, reclaimed um, from various places. And so we've we've built this modular house in what I call buildable, affordable modules. So we built the smallest thing that we could um, to get started, to get approval for. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I added an office and, and then a kid pod eventually. And so we've got these connected pods which form a house, but there were a series of little tiny houses, I suppose, that can, all connected mm. together. And, you know, so we collect all our own water. We deal with all our own, um, you know, human manure waste. And because we've got things like a non-flush toilet, you know, our water consumption is absolutely tiny. Um, here at Crystal Waters, there's actually no pipes coming in. So Crystal Waters is an eco-village uh, that's designed using permaculture principles and it was designed about 30 years ago. I've been here for 21 now. Mm. Um, so there's no pipes coming in or out. So from a practical sense, it actually encourages everyone to be really conservative. So from a design perspective, I think that's brilliant. You know, if you can underpin your way of life with simple design limitations that mean that you have to think more creatively and if all of your wastewater and your toilet um, material is going back into your landscape you become really conscious about how what you put down the sink and and how Mm. you manage it 
So, so it just kind of ripples from there. So they're kind of the really simple practical things. You know, we generate our electricity and collect our water, deal with our human manure. Um, and our house is surrounded by um, gardens and, you know, pretty much my daily, you know, lunchtime I go out and we, with, my, with my son who's homeschooling at the moment, you know, he'll go up and get the eggs and we might get, you know, I don't know, 20 different sorts of greens and some turmeric and um, whatever else we can find around the garden, make up a lunch out of what mm. we find. That's a beautiful thing to be able to do. And, yeah. uh, and it's so this idea too of <clears throat> food waste. So I, I kind of think around a lot of the food that's grown in the world is wasted. We know that that's kind of a fact and that we've seen and we've heard. But there's a whole lot more than that. That's not just the food that's wasted, you know, on the farm or in transit or in the shops or in our fridges or off our plates or at restaurants. It's also the food that we don't eat. So when you grow your food at home, you can you can diminish your footprint on the landscape and on the environment <clears throat> incredibly by actually eating all of the plant. And, you know, the example that I use that really explains it well is is like the pumpkin. So, you know, I have pumpkins. I've never planted for the last decade or more. I've never planted a pumpkin. You know, pumpkins self-seed everywhere. So the pumpkin comes up where it wants to. And it, from the moment it starts coming up, I start eating it. All of the shoots and the leaves are edible. And so I just, the way they start heading off in directions that I don't really want them, then that one goes into the lunch pot. Um, you know, and then... After time, you know, of course, you get the pumpkins, but the whole plant is edible. The flowers, the shoots, the skin, the seeds. You know, mm. we'll we'll scoop out the seeds and toss them out and then pop down to the shops and buy some pepitas, for example. Mm. Yeah. We, you know, we take off the outside edge, which has all the, you know, the phytonutrients, or we struggle to grow other, you know, leafy greens where there they are in front of us all the time. So thinking about how we can use all parts. And the, the thing about pumpkins is that, you know, in in the industrial food system, they're the kind of plants which, you know, have knocked down herbicides to kill off all the green stuff. You know, we look mm. past most of the food in the world because we don't see it. There's, there's well over 30,000 varieties of edible plants, but yet three three plants is what feeds us, what, 60% of our diet and 20 plants is 90%. Mm. So agriculture garden, you know, I think is a really critical part of actually helping us to live a more sustainable and regenerative life and a one-planet life because if agriculture is one of those things which is is actually taking up most of, you know, the ecological space mm. on the planet, how, how are we to change it? And there was a recent report that came out by the International Planet on Climate Change, the land report that came out earlier this month, saying that we, we desperately need to change our diet globally. Mm. If we've got a situation where, you know, ec ecologically our footprint is that if everyone lived like Australian, we'd need four or five Earths. Um, every year we've already overshot our, our budget. So the ecological overshoot day this year um, came globally at July 29th. So we've already passed our ecological mm. Everything we do, every person on the planet, everything we do from now is eating into future budgets or ecological budgets. Mm. The, the other thing about that is that Australia's budget actually <clears throat> got overshot back in, I don't know, March 31st, 90 days into the year. Yeah. Um, so how can we diminish our footprint? It's by 
changing our diets, about diminishing the resources that we require. So that's in our housing, our clothing, our food, our transportation. And, you know, I know we can't do everything and we can't do everything all the time, but we can all eat much lower on the food chain. Mm. Um, you know, uh, you know, some of the key things that I try and um, choose in terms of, you know, clothing as well, when I go, go like I head off to the, the op shop and I look for um, compostable clothing, that's kind of my mm. main, <laughs> yeah. can it be composted? That's, that's my main choice of, of, of um, clothing. So at the end of its life, it'll, um, you know, after it's been patched a few times or turned into something else, mm. it will end up in the worm farm and yeah. that's a brilliant thing. Um, yeah, so I think with the permaculture life, it's the taking responsibility of your own everything, of your own needs, your own resources, your own waste. And by doing so, you actually see the effect of your actions. Whereas when you kind of live where you buy something from the shop, you don't know how that's made, so you don't know what's gone into it. And then when you throw it out in the bin and it goes off in a truck, you don't see what happens to it either and you don't see the massive pile that's growing. So, yeah, I think it really is that thing of being more localised, you actually see the effects of what you're doing and therefore you adjust your behaviour accordingly. Yeah, Would you agree? Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's a, it's a connected life, really. Mm. It's feeling connected. And because... Because, you know, you're growing your food and you're connecting with the natural rhythms and natural cycles, you, I don't know, there's something something I feel really deeply you know, that it that it hurts when I don't. <laughs> I don't know if that makes sense. You know, like when you're, like when you're harming another being, mm. like it hurts. Mm. And it, it hurts when I feel like I'm doing something that is harming. Mm. And, uh, and it's an internal... It's, an, it's a feeling. I don't know how to explain it any other way that, um, you know, it's this kind of barometer to know, you know, when I, when I feel like something's not working. And, of course, you know, like there's heaps of stuff that I do that is damaging and mm. we all do that and, and, it's, and it's impossible. It's absolutely impossible yeah. to get away from that. And we have to try and think about how we can, we can do what we we can in the most authentic way and to share the joy of that and to open up positive conversations about all of that and mm. when we're talking mm -hmm. to people to 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 not try and convince them of another way but maybe take our surplus and share it mm. or you know offer something as a as a gift and pay it forward and it and i think it's that that idea of the law of attraction to try and attract more people to it because there is this sense of abundance and great food and and, mm. uh, and a joy in what's happening. And so I think that's, that is for me, you know, like, and, and also, you know, I do a lot of talks around in the community and, uh, you know, I take plants from my garden. I fill up, fill up my, um, fill up as much as I can in my trolleys or whatever and I take all these plants and lay them out and I tell the stories about the plants. And I think it's a storytelling. We mm. need a new narrative. Yeah, we need a new way to to share what it means to live well. Mm. You know, what are notions of progress and development and the the good life is has been twisted and turned by the by consumerism and mm. commodification and and you know this the idea of what it means 
to live well or to be successful. Mm. You know, I saw my income statements, you'd probably absolutely be aghast, but I feel completely, absolutely rich and enriched every day by this life and the connections I make and and the things that are possible. Um, You know, the gift economy is extraordinary Mm. and that's a really big part of my permaculture life too. You know, I couldn't possibly buy all the things that I would like to have but through the exchange network and through collaborating with people in our community we can have this amazing um amazing life and it does come through that connectedness mm. by working with the people locally and with having a an international network of people who also uh, are working on this i mean um just some really simple examples you know to be able to access you know organic raw you know, milk and beautiful cheeses and yogurts and kefirs and all of those things. Mm. I We've formed a little collective dairy here at Crystal Waters. So we have three cows that are loved by mm. maybe 25 people. Fantastic. And every two weeks, it's my turn to go and milk. And so um, with with Evan and, and our kids, we, we um, head on down right. with our buckets down to the dairy <sighs> And, and we so we look after the cows that day and and um, and bring home their milk and we share that milk with a, a couple of other people um, and and then we make our cheeses and our yogurts and our kefirs and all of that sort of thing Great. and then then the next day it's someone else so this whole idea about well I can't I can't actually look after cows every day I don't have the capacity yeah. in my time my space and that's mm. one of the things I often people say I don't have time to do this but by collaborating we we can so that's and you know i've seen this in um eco villages in other parts of the world too like in denmark there was this in a horseshoe in denmark near aarhus there was this amazing place where actually they decided that this as they were developing the center part the best agricultural land was left in the middle and the houses were pushed up on the side mm. um so all of the waste water and the waste nutrients flowed down to the farm um, and they also actually had a collective toilet system so that um, they collected the human urine and that went down into the orchard area. They collected the urine separately and that went to this massive um, lined woodlot area which they then chipped and used that to generate the central heating. Um, and mm. then all the, the sort of compost materials came down to the farm. You could come and help as well if you wanted to. And that material kind of went back. So all the food came directly back um, to to all the neighbours. And you could either pay for that as a CSA system or you could come down and help and, and get it for mm. free. And was um, there, I think I've heard about that. Was there a farmer employed by the community yeah, yeah. to actually grow the food? And Yeah, so the farm, there was a farmer employed and then they would have people who'd come down and help. But... Around the edge of the farm, there was also allotments. So if you wanted to have your own allotment to grow your salads and your herbs and other things, you could mm. do that. And they also had um, some shared goats, some shared cows, shared bees and shared chickens. Mm. So a similar kind mm. of thing to our collective dairy that there were, there were neighbourhood animals. And mm. I think this idea, I know that David talks about in Metro Suburbia, you know, like pulling down the fences. Mm. You don't have to live in an village to do this kind of thing it's it's a mindset i think mm. and even without with the fences up just conceptually we we poke holes through them so we have gates through them or we mm. we open our doors in our backyards for, for sharing but you know our backyards could be a collective orchard or a you know 
we have, you know, there's chickens down at one end of the street if someone wants them or, you know, and it can, yeah. it can work in different ways. And having, you know, we do shared meals here too, which I think are just brilliant. So sometimes we have um, it where someone's cooking and then everyone comes and then it's next the next time someone else cooks and then everyone comes. Or we have, um, you know, just the potluck type of thing. And they happen all the time. They can be combined with music or different sorts of events. I organised one just um, last week. We had some amazing visitors from um, from North Sumatra who run the, um, an incredible permaculture farm there, a 100-hectare permaculture farm, which is actually their strategy to save the orangutans and the habitat. Mm. So this combination between, you know, permaculture and, and planetary regeneration and habitat regeneration is really clear. You know, I really do see permaculture as um, a way to create a, a safe climate. It's, it's climate repair. It's regenerative food system um, um, approach. And it's, and it's way to actually connect communities and, and transform livelihoods. So, for example, in this North Martin example, um, Pernut ha- actually received funding from the Lush Foundation. He works with Lush oh, yeah. Foundation and they helped to buy this, this land, which was illegal um, palm oil plantations that were encroaching into a national park, which was habitat for orangutans. And so he... Um, he, they bought up this land. They've taken out the palm oil. They're regenerating the natural forest and creating um, regenerative farm demonstration as part of this. And they do training for the local farmers. And what they're what they're starting to see now is the farmers are reporting that they're able to earn more money doing it that way than they are from the traditional palm oil plantation. Mm. And so for the farmers, you know, if it comes down to that, for the dollars that they can actually make more money replanting. Um, the ecological system, restoring the waterways, restoring the soils, planting a, a biodiverse um, crop, then that's a huge benefit for the whole entire region, which is mm. continuously clear. You know, we're hearing about um, the Amazon burning. I mean, Sumatra's been burning for decades, you know. Mm. It's been cleared enormously. And so I think this is a really positive thing. When we start to look out and see permaculture's relevance and permaculture's power to shift and change quite extraordinarily big ideas like palm oil plantations, mm. you realise that, you know, we're, we're actually onto something. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and the reason why it's so powerful is that there are so many people doing it everywhere around the world, you know, and, and it constantly gives... Wherever I go, I find that there's people doing permaculture in every community, mm. in every country. That it's it's out there, and it's this kind of quiet revolution of people making positive changes, mm. and not necessarily yelling or screaming about it, but just quietly doing it because it makes sense. Mm. It is about creating quality of life, um, and uh, and making really positive changes in livelihood to be able to feed your feed your family to have a. a um, higher quality of life in, with less less money to be able to restore environments and to really to connect up with people. Mm. Um, you know, it's like Charles Eisenstein's. Um, I don't know the title of his book. I'm not. I'm going to quote this wrong. I'm pretty sure. But anyway, he talks about the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible. Mm. And I see permaculture as as a way to kind of open up those doors to see that because. 
it, it looks at a whole range of different things. From It's not just about the gardening, is it, or how mm. we build our house or put our solar panels on and which orientation it is. It's it's how we how we choose to live an authentic and real life that is connected with our community. It's it's how, how we choose to spend our money. It's how we choose to earn our money. It's mm. how we choose to spend our time. Mm. It's those also, every de- everyday decisions that yeah, you're constantly making. Yeah, that's right. And it comes from a from a place of it's an it's a I think what makes permaculture difference is the is the ethics in mm, a way, you know. Yeah. It's having that that is the sort of a, a, a moral guide in a way, I suppose, you know, that that our actions and our decisions are made on that thing like well, is what I'm doing actually caring for the earth, regenerating mm. the earth? Is it is it actually caring for people, my family, my neighbours? Um, people on the other side of the world, and, and is uh, the sorts of things that I'm doing actually contributing um, to to others and to other species. So that's kind of like the the fair share as well. That is it helping to protect and restore um, habitats for other species? Are my actions and the t- kinds of things I'm doing actually helping those people who are being impacted the most by the livelihoods of industrial nations? I mean, yeah. Recently, spending a lot of time in in and working with people um, in places like Africa and, you know, the women's group over there, and I was talking with them and the impacts on their life, they're, they're experiencing climate change on a daily basis, you know, and they're the people who've had the least contribution to making these changes, yet they're on the forefront of impact. And this is, you know, globally this is happening. So how can we support people in those parts of the world and mm. you know it's it's kind of an interesting thing I don't know how I ended up well I do actually how I ended up being involved in African projects you know because I'm online a lot with with permaculture with the blog and the YouTube and and you know on social media I started getting lots of um, inquiries and lots of requests for help and you know that the, your first reaction when you see something from Africa, because of all the stuff in media, you say, you know, it's got to be a scam. Mm. Anyway, I started thinking, this, this, people, this actually looks like people, you know, reaching out. And so mm. I started answering these these little Facebook questions. And then I started having conversations with them and realised that they're doing amazing work in their local communities um, because they care, because they understand that they can make a difference with permaculture. They've heard about it. They recognize that it actually is something that relates to indigenous practices in their country. But, you know, what with slavery and, and um, you know, corporate control and all different sorts of things that, that they're, the underpinning of their society has been completely pulled out and corruption and, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're going to Indonesia or India or Africa, you know, there's stories about how their traditional seeds and farming systems were taken from them. Mm. And they were, you know, pretty much forced to take on particular seeds with chemicals and grow certain ways. And, you know, I was talking to um, a Kenyan tea farmer and he was saying how he gets nothing, absolutely nothing for growing the tea. Mm. He grows it organically. I think it's like, you know, 10 cents for this massive amount of tea, you know, after the after the, you know, the middleman's taken the money and then, the, you know, the paid for all the different imports and everything, mm. absolutely nothing. And so, you know, what permaculture is actually doing is helping 
local people and communities like that to to restore um, traditional food systems, home gardens, mm. which have been abandoned with, you know, just growing cash crops, um, revaluing uh, traditional foods because often they're the ones that are just pushed aside as being sort of backward and primitive where they're the ones that are robust and pest-free and... Mm. And have grown in that area for you know, hundreds it, of years. Yeah, that's right. So it's been an amazing journey actually working with them. And so we just recently with the Ethos Foundation um, raised money to support um, people to, to do a permaculture design course. So it's free for them. So they they create the space, they set up all the demonstration gardens that that's a, a centre now for learning. And, and invite people to come from villages and um, schools and training centres all the way around their region. And so there was 30 women and young farmers who came and um, got permaculture education for free. And, you know, I questioned about, well, what's, you know, why, what's the importance of them doing that? And I and I didn't really realise till I went there that actually having an international a, internationally accredited certificate mm. Like a permaculture certificate, it means a lot. Mm. It's a huge thing because maybe they don't even have a school certificate. They never have any interaction with anything international before. And what it does is it, <clears throat> it offers a sense of um, acknowledgement of their leadership within their community to stand up and to speak up. Mm. This whole concept of actually giving people strength, those people who want to stand up and to speak up, mm. And the strength and, and, you know, I'm saying permission in a really loose sense that often people need to be given permission, you know, mm. like we stay quiet until we don't, well, I, I don't really have any authority to speak on that. Well, actually, yes, you do. You know, yeah. if you've done the, yeah. you understand it, if you feel it and you know it and you coming from the right place, you absolutely have the right and the permission to speak. Mm. And we no higher authority in permaculture to say yes or no, you mm. do. It is beginning you know a dispersive rippled out uh movement that is absolutely everywhere mm. and what we do is to pull off any of those feelings of, of the barriers for people to actually stand up and speak up for what is right mm. and so if women in africa can stand up and go and speak to their local um local heads of government you know whether it be in the the local community their their region and say i am and a permaculture ambassador, a global permaculture ambassador, um, there are well over a million people around the world who, who, you know, and so it kind of extends from that, you mm. know, like it gives us massive global sense of acknowledgement to that person's voice. Mm. This is where I think um, that sometimes we can feel hopeless and helpless that you know, there's not much we can do in our little communities to affect the larger change, but it is actually all of us doing all of that and speaking speaking up. I'm, I'm, I'm saying this a lot now. <laughs> I hear myself saying it a lot, this idea that we do need to speak up. We are in a climate and ecological crisis. There is an emergency. We now have, thankfully, we have well over, well, it's almost a 1,000 um, jurisdictions around the world that have declared a climate. Mm, and our a, local council did yesterday, actually. Yay! Yay! <laughs> and and it's rippling out. I remember doing a, um, a an interview just a couple of months ago, and I was saying there's 300 governments around the world that have done this, and now we're up to a thousand, and there's a lot of national governments 
So every every smaller council that does declare it builds up to get the strength to having you know a statewide mm. or a national declaration. So every small, it's like it's nested systems, and we understand this from a pattern perspective mm. that every cell within the system influences the larger cells, and, mm. the, and it's a really important thing to remember and to keep that in mind. And and even um you know there's this um, scientific theory called morphic resonance. And, uh, you know, by Rupert Sheldrake, where it actually says, you know, that when something happens in one part, it does actually send out a ripple effect across the world, that mm. everything that everyone does does make a difference. Um, and so I really think this idea, we've been talking about it. There's a group of us who's starting to meet and talk about permaculture and climate change. There's actually a lot of groups of people talking about this that I'm starting to understand, which is absolutely brilliant because... I really do see that permaculture having, you know, 40 years or so of practical on-the-ground experience mm. of um, trying out different systems, demonstrating different systems, educating educators, which I think is our primary thing that we need to do now. Mm. We need to teach as many teachers as possible that can go out to be teachers. And it's not about seeing permaculture as, oh, well, I have to teach this PDC, you know, the two-week course. It can be teaching in local neighbourhood, teaching in local school. Um, you know, there's um, whatever role that you feel that you can speak up mm. to do that. And so whether it's speaking up in your family, whether you're a homeschooling um, parent or whether you're um, speaking up and you feel really passionate to support, you know, the, you know, the young activists or you are a young activist mm. to speak to your local um, government official or to the local whatever it might be so feeling empowered that it's yes, okay exactly. to say what to say what you're thinking I think so. yeah so what what we're we're just unfolding this at the moment um is to actually have a, a global ambassador program for permaculture people where you know if you have that foundation of permaculture thinking and action that you can sign up to be um, a permaculture ambassador and you get will get pegged around the world um you know have a map so we can see where all the global ambassadors mm. are. And, and then, um, and so you can, you know, you can actually start to share information. We'll have Google Drives where, or something of that nature, where we can store, you know, resources from all the different groups. And mm. also if, you, if you're if you a young permaculture ambassador and you, you want to sort of have some extra materials that you can gather from, you know, to do a presentation or to to do handouts. There'll be materials you can download and share and, you know, like open source materials. So this is this is emerging. So I'm already starting to talk from this perspective. You know, when I go different places, like, you know, I'm a permaculture ambassador. You know, mm, like I'm speaking yeah. uh, from, you know, as as one of these million strong people, we need to acknowledge that we are not a fringe or hippie thing. We are mm. actually part of the solution that needs to happen right now and that we need to stop feeling ashamed of, of you know, the P word, you know, yeah. that we are. It connects us globally with, with so many people mm. and so many uh, – actually, I think in many ways that permaculture is acknowledged – more highly in some places than we even give it credit. Um, recently, I was in um, in the UK. I went to a the climate change and um, consciousness conference up in Fintorn. There was forty five different nations represented there: scientists, activists, mm. 
Um, there was Vandana Shiva there and Charles Eisenstein, um, uh, an amazing young guy from um, America, Shukatl Martinez. I don't know if I said that right, but he started up this um, um, Earth Guardians program. He's a young rapper dude who um, who talks about um, protecting the earth, and he's got a massive following in, in America, and he, he talks about permaculture too. And everyone was speaking. Uh, you know, by the, Vandana was talking about all her concepts around seed and seed sovereignty and, um, you know, Monsanto, and then she, as towards the end, she would say, so what we need to do is we need to have more organic farming and things like permaculture. Every single person mentioned mm, permaculture. I've been hearing the same thing too. Thinking, this is phenomenal that mm. it is it is actually acknowledged as a key solution. I was talking to Charles Massey the other day, author of you know, um, uh, Call of the Ring Warbler, and he did this big talk at an event that I was at, and he did the same thing. Um, Charles Eisenstein um, did the same thing, um, and and then I was a, a friend of mine is a an MP in the British Parliament, and so on May the first which just happened to be the day that the UK um, national government the, the declared a climate and environment emergency. I was in actually in the halls of parliament while that was happening and I was so lucked out with that. It was electric. and But I was, before they went in to the inter-parliament um, to, to make that declaration, I was walking through the halls <coughs> excuse me, with my friend and... and um, he was introducing me to all these people and he'd say, oh, this is Morag. Um, she's, you know, she's a permaculture person from Australia. And I said, I love permaculture. And it turned out that this guy, I didn't know, he was saying, oh, I have a permaculture allotment and I, you know, I really love permaculture. He was the leader of the Labor Party, the guy who actually pushed to have the declaration mm. made during Corbyn. And then further along the hallways, I was introduced to another person. He turned out to be the Minister for Agriculture and Environment and um, he, we were talking about permaculture as well, and he was saying, "I absolutely love it. I think it's really, really important." And if you were living here in Britain, um, you'd be, you'd be getting um, funding now to set up permaculture demonstration centre, permaculture education, education in the schools. Mm. Because what we're doing is we're our new, our new agricultural policy, which is about to be released, is going to be shifting subsidies away from industrial farming systems to um, these regenerative approaches, the agroecological approaches, the permaculture approaches. And so I walked out of the parliament, Westminster, mm. pinched myself, absolutely pinching myself, thinking, did that actually really happen? Did the, you know, leaders, people who are, you know, possibly going to be prime ministers or, you know, at that level, talking about permaculture in that way. Mm. And I kind of felt like all of a sudden there was this great sense of, like I already felt really great about permaculture, but I felt a much greater sense of pride and strength in what it is that we do, mm. in that we we have a platform to speak from, that if we do want to make positive change in this world, that we can draw from that strength, mm. that, that it is is an incredible thing. So, you know, I've, I've kind of made commitments um, to to teach at least a 1,000 permaculture teachers a year and to support at least 100 tr permaculture training programs offered to um, leaders in the global south, um, to offer free permaculture education as much as I can. Um, so that's why, you know, I have the YouTube and the blog and every month I have a, a masterclass 
And, and so that's an online masterclass and people attend that from all around the world. I ran one just on Monday and I was blown away. There was, I think, 1,700 people registered really? for this online wow. masterclass. So, you know, people need this information and people are asking for this information mm. and, and the, the topics that I choose for the masterclasses come from the people who attend the class. So, so what would you like to learn next? And yeah. so they do a little poll and the one that pops out the most is what I create the next masterclass about. So it's kind of like a generative approach to yeah. uh, feeding, you know, whatever I can out. And and um, and I'm also just starting to create a whole series of uh, conversations with um, some of the people who really inspired me in terms of the their ecological thinking. Um, uh, so some of the elders in the ecological thinking movement doing interviews with them now and we'll start to release those soon i'm finding it really enriching that Mm. this in in a way you know what's happening in the world now is bringing bringing people together who have a sense of understanding about what some of the solutions can be and to talk together about how we can actually ripple this out and to share it out as much as possible so you know, I would, um, you know, I'm hoping that um, in the next next few months, maybe to to be a global permaculture ambassador at the UN. That's mm. my. That's another. Right. Like, how, how far can we speak up? Yeah. How, you know, how can we speak up to? And not just speaking speaking loudly, like I said, but like, what? Who is the? Who and what organisations and what systems? Do we think that we can can influence, and whether that be in a local community or a global community, that we speak up to whatever capacity we feel we can, and and the more too that we can open up conversation spaces, I think that's mm. really mm. even if it is a over dinner, you know, um, to open up the conversations about various things in uh, looking at what we can do differently, and and not in a blaming or a guilt or a shame or. Yeah. Okay. because that just that's disabling and it, mm. and it ends up being divisive mm. you know it's about trying to find yeah the, the positive ways forward which is hard you know it is hard I mean I've just actually come out of a bit of a a slump you know I came back to Australia after you know all of that and then you know the election happened and you know a dynamite yeah <laughs> There's all these things and you just think, oh, my gosh, you know, and then there's the fires in the Amazon and, there's, and you know, as part of my research, you know, I actually have little um, Google alerts set that send anytime there's anything to do with, um, you know, climate change um, or announcements or anything to do with, with that, it just comes straight in. So that's all the news that I'm getting mm. at the moment and my – and just – it just is overwhelming. So I kind of So how I, do you how do you cope well, with that? Well I have to remind myself again where to go back to that back to the beginning and thinking, you know, I've been in this place yelling and screaming and I started to feel that I was starting to push out too much of that. Mm. And that people would stop listening again because it is that I'm only talking about what's going wrong. And it is coming back to that question that I realised all those years ago, it's like, well, okay, how are we to live? Mm. What's the life look like that we need to, to live? What is the most beautiful um, world yeah. our hearts know is possible? And create that an example create that other that. people can 
live Stay it. and follow. And share that. Yeah. You know, share, yeah. share whatever you can about those positive ways um, and encourage people to, to do that in whatever small way possible and acknowledge that mm. and never make people feel bad that they're not doing enough mm. because we're all doing what we can. Exactly, yeah. So, I mean, you're saying that you have that uncomfortable feeling when you're maybe doing something that feels like it's not enriching the planet or enriching others and... Um, yeah, in our last issue we talked about, you know, environmental guilt, which I guess is that feeling really when you know there's these problems in the in the world and, you know, and you might read a story about someone who, you know, there's the flip side, there's all these amazing positive things, but then sometimes people can feel that, oh, well, I'm not kind of doing that and I'm not doing that and I want to do it. But like you say, like the way that I society is set up it is actually quite impossible to do everything perfectly so mm. what how do you deal with that feeling and how would you sort of sort of talk to other people who might be feeling that who feel like they can't keep up and do all of the good things mm. how, how do you well, deal with that I uncomfortable think feeling? there's a lot of different things but um the first a couple of things like i give my kids a big hug yeah <laughs> Because, you know, when I when I when I focus on on them, you know, it it that helps you to think of the intergenerational equity side of things, and it also brings back to that immediate love. I think we have to come, we have to live in a way that comes from a position of love, and mm. so love in that way, and love, you know, I go for a walk in nature, you know, mm. and. That, helps to ground me and to help me find what is the next step, what is the most important thing mm. to be doing. And what things that are really not important, we fill our lives with so much stuff that we probably don't need and could quite easily let go of. Mm. And sometimes just simply decluttering our minds by going out and, and breathing deeply and walking in nature and noticing, you know, not trying to go out with necessarily with an intent to come up with a solution. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I've noticed nature. I'm going to notice nature and I'm going to. <laughs> <laughs> I will notice those birds and butterflies and what's edible. And I will feel track. good. But I, I think we get stuck in this think overthinking. We need to get more into our, into the heart space mm. to, to feel what is the right thing to do and to feel what it is that we can let go of. And, you know, we most of us live in a very heightened state of stress most of the time and it's the cause of much anxiety and depression and and um, ill health and mm. and that ripples out into the planet and so actually going back to that point of self-love and, and mm. love of our connection with our place it helps to kind of inform us in a really um simple but profound way and um so so that kind of really helps to ground me. Um, there was something else that I was going to say, but it's kind of gone now, but um, I'm, sure, <laughs> I'm sure I'll find it back. So what, the question again And was, I guess also I... like like when there's, like say for people who are still doing things that they know aren't necessarily the right thing, but they, they're struggling to maybe do, do it all, how to sort of choose what to do? I mean, I guess part of it is realising the things that you can actually change and focusing on those 
and accepting for now the things that you can't do and Mm -hmm. feeling okay with that and knowing, well, right now, because of my life circumstances, I can't do this thing, but I will. I remembered what I was going to say now. So the other thing is about, you know, it's that opening up of the conversation space, that mm. not pretending that we, we're we all good and we know it all and we're, we've got it covered, mm. to actually mm. say to someone, you know, like whether it be at the school gate or, you know, down at the local cafe or with your friends over a cup of tea, you know, this I'm feeling a bit worried about what's going on or, you know, I really wish there's something more that I could do. Sometimes I feel really guilty about it. And then there's someone will say, yeah, I do too, and, and so this sharing, um, opening up. So mm. it's not something you hold mm. inside as an internal guilt. And then what happens is you start to go, well, well, I could, you know, I could pick up some a food box for you up the road if you'd like. I go there every week. Mm. And then these conversations mm. and solutions start to happen simply from the fact of opening up yeah. and showing our vulnerability and not pretending that we do know everything and we've got all the solutions and we're mm. completely there. You know, to be vulnerable and to show our sense that we, you know, we are, <laughs> we're all human mm. and we try to be, you know, perfect and, you know, we, we worry about being judged. But I think the thing is that if we, if we do come from that point of authenticity and we do allow ourselves to be vulnerable in our communities and with our friends, mm. it opens up the possibility for us all to grow and for other people who are feeling guarded or shameful to also open up mm. and to kind of shake off the guilt because the guilt stops us from acting really mm. in a lot of ways. The guilt or the shame or the fear of being blamed or judged makes us build walls around ourselves and we just don't mm. need walls. No. We need We need to drop down the walls, you know, the fences in our neighbourhoods, we need to drop down the walls of our uh, interpersonal relationships and mm. just start to be human and really real and to get on with you know, doing the thing that is probably, you know, someone said recently, you know, um, a couple of years ago there was a thousand problems. Today we just have one, you know. It's it's the climate environment emergency and everything that we do, you know, how can we reorient, it, uh, reorient our lives and our decisions and everything towards that and and work with our friends and our neighbours and our workplaces and, and, um, and, and you know, try try to avoid the toxic relationships if we can, you know, mm. find people to lead us, um, join local groups, get involved in local projects, find places where you mm. feel like you're singing yeah. and be nourished by being part of the solution finding. Mm. Mm. And, it is, and when you pre- start to feel that, then it ripples out and it, it kind of just it emerges from you as a sense of purpose and joy and and um you know that that comes from you when you are in that space that's infectious mm. it just touches other people in ways that you can't even begin to imagine far more than going out and giving a instructional talk yeah. it's the feeling and that that heart connection and i i don't really know how to you can't bottle that mm. you just got to embody it and be it mm. yeah and I think, yeah, that connection and that within your local community. I've just finished reading Local is Our Future by Helena Norberg-Hodge. Oh, yeah. And, yep. um, yeah, that's it's just talking about, yeah, by 
having all those local connections and everything within your own community, that's the way to go forward. And that, in her words, is the economics of happiness rather than this. Well, she is actually one of my key mentors. Mm. When I was 23, I met her for the first time at Schumacher College. She was one of the guests coming to speak there. I went there to learn from Fritjof Capra about systems view of life and ecological thinking and shifting paradigms, and she came in for a couple of days. And I, and I, and I actually still stay in touch with Fritjof, and I just recently been having conversations with him about, um, you know, looking at the science of regeneration. And we, he ha he actually has an online course too called Systems View of Life, which is just brilliant. But um, so back to Helena. She came in. She started talking about the Ladakhi people and mm. um, and the the traditional life and then the impact of Western development and and what they were doing over there. And that was one of those moments where my my heart was just opened and I mm. just felt this. There was this burning ball of fire inside of me, and I went straight up to her afterwards. I said, I asked if I could come and work with her up in Ladakh, and so I volunteered up there all of that summer, and then went back again, and I took Evan back. And so I think all up, you know, it was almost a year that I spent in Ladakh with, mm. with Helena and doing it quite often um, being a sort of assistant and helping to develop up programs. We did, um, um, we did arts and theatre and um, community education and um, tourist education and demonstrations and opened up a, a farm stay program where people um, who visited could actually go out and live with traditional Ladakhis and learn about sustainable ways of mm -hmm. life. And, uh, and yeah, so her way of thinking and explaining what's really important, both through this book and through her work through Local Futures, and she's created things like study circles, which I found brilliant. When I first came back from Ladakh, I took all these materials. We'd, we'd organised study circles where we'd have um, some materials that all of us would read and then we'd come together and we'd talk about this. And as a result of exploring ideas and um, educating ourselves as a community, we then formed little local food boxes, um, the city farm, a mm. whole range of initiatives, um, um, exchange programs. We, you know, someone's fridge broke, and someone said, "Oh, I've got a spare one." And so, you kind of like this community gift economy mm. emerged out of. So, I think her work is incredibly powerful. Mm. Her her ideas have distilled kind of some of the real essence, I think, of what it means. Yeah. Well, and it underpins our permaculture thinking just beautifully. So I, when I teach permaculture, I always teach it from the perspective of having, you know, the systems thinking of, of you know, places like Schumacher College and Fritjof Kapper and, the, you know, Helena's work with the economics of happiness and all of these different ideas together, you know, are, are, are so connected. And by reaching out to people like that who do have this, broad international work and speak up at the highest levels, I think permaculture through its collaboration and through its association with people like this can really start to make an incredibly big difference and start to get support. Like I would like to see, like say, for example, going to the UN to speak up, to get support to have permaculture education rippled out as free education mm. in as many of the world as possible to the people who want it not to go in of course and go okay we have permaculture and this is the solution for you um that's not what it's about i mean the the women in africa approached us saying you know we need help 
to look at seeds and regenerative farming, getting our soil alive and, and collecting water and creating community livelihoods. And, and, and they heard that permaculture was a thing that could help them do that. So I think where people ask for it and people acknowledge it and it ripples out through demonstration, through this sort of infectious thing, oh, my gosh, what are they doing there? That's amazing. We'd like some of that. And to actually have some funding available to ripple out to enable more and more permaculture educators to keep this rolling out to to everywhere. I mean, mm. a lot of communities in Africa and Indonesia and all over the world are experiencing so much poverty and so much despair and so much hunger and so much unnecessary um, problems because of um, the, the industrial system and the system of misplaced subsidies and all sorts of things. Mm. And, and by simple permaculture approaches you know a lot of that can be averted mm. not of course i mean it's such a complex thing but we often overlook the simplest solutions thinking there must be a really big you know mm -hmm. sewer or whatever but actually it's this multiplicity of localized solutions and not taking permaculture from australia and plonking it somewhere else but actually locally adapting it mm. you know the principles and the ethics and the approach is similar but its manifestation in each and every community needs to be transformed. And that's why we need local teachers everywhere. Mm. You know, one of there's a local teacher in a, in a refugee camp that we've just sponsored and, and she's rippling it out. You know, it's up in the far west of Kenya. There's 200,000 people living in this dust bowl. Wow. And so through permaculture thinking, she's been able to start to create permaculture gardens, you know, quite simply. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's just that having that knowledge and then passing that knowledge on yeah, is a big key. Yeah. Right? yeah. Okay. And, and, yep. Well, thank you so much for talking to us. I feel like we've covered a lot of topics. <laughs> and, yeah. Um, yeah, it's been fabulous. And to hear all your knowledge and your ideas. And I think, yeah, the work you're doing is great. And keep it up. Yeah, thanks, for <laughs> thanks for having me on your show, Robin. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Bye. If you would like to know more about Morag's courses, the Ethos Foundation and all the other great work she's doing, go to ourpermaculturelife.com. For lots more information about permaculture and practical ways to include permaculture in your life, go to pitmagazine.com.au for articles, podcasts and more. Or subscribe to our magazine at www.pitmagazine.com.au.